0: From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter
1: the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good
2: morning, Vermont. It is uh, Tuesday, October the 20th in uh, good old Waterbury, Vermont, where WDEV is based. And we are so glad to have you with us this morning. we got a good show Lined up for folks, we're going to be speaking first with uh, Lola Duffert. She's the uh, terrific uh, education writer with vtdigger.org. And uh, Lola has been covering the heck out of our schools this fall. Uh, The schools, of course, grappling with this coronavirus crisis, trying to figure out how much in-classroom learning they can do and how much uh, they have to have kids at home. All that sort of stuff, uh, and we're going to get caught up with how the first oh, five or so weeks of the school year, maybe six weeks now, of the school year have gone. Uh, Lola will be joining us just in a moment after I uh, tell you a little bit about uh, what else we have uh, coming up this morning. The um, it's it's uh, let's see here. We we, we are going to be uh, speaking in the latter hour of the program this morning. With a couple of computer tech guys, uh, they're going to be joining us to talk about this weird story that broke last Wednesday in the New York Post, where a computer tech in Delaware uh, allegedly gave a laptop allegedly belonging to Hunter Biden to uh, a lawyer for Rudy Giuliani. And this was uh, widely seen as an effort to create some uh, some storms around uh, the Bidens uh, just in advance of the election. Uh, I don't think... Uh, uh, a lot of folks in the mainstream media did not uh, jump on the, uh, on the story immediately. Of course, the New York Post, owned by Rupert Murdoch, same, uh, gentleman who owns Fox News, uh, is oftentimes, uh, accused of, uh, producing somewhat suspect, uh, journalism. And, uh, this story certainly has, uh, had a lot of questions surrounding it. But the, the underlying thing, if, if in fact this computer tech gave, uh, Hunter Biden's machine to or the hard drive or even a copy of the hard drive there from, from to uh, a lawyer for Rudy Giuliani, that really raises a lot of questions in my mind about uh, do uh, computer techs uh, actually uh, respect their clients' privacy and et cetera? And what are the rules there? Are there any sort of professional associations or other uh, ethical codes and that sort of thing in this profession as there are? and so many others. You know, teachers have uh, confidentiality surrounding students, lawyers around their clients, uh, certainly uh, people who uh, provide mental health services. are not supposed to talk about what uh, they've been discussing in their appointments, on and on. But uh, th- what's the case with uh, with computer techs? It's going to be an interesting conversation there. Let's get right into our discussion here with uh, Lola, Lola Dufford of vtdigger.org this morning. And, Lola, uh, interesting news that you're reporting now about the... Um, this uh, COVID outbreak in central Vermont.
3: Yeah, well, the um, as your listeners probably heard last week, uh, there was an outbreak reported at this um, community ice rink in Montpelier. Um, I think originally, when it was reported, first reported, there were twelve cases. Um, as of yesterday, there were thirty. Um, and kind of separately from that, uh, last week, there were two cases reported at Union Elementary um, in Montpelier. Um, and as of tomorrow as of yesterday that jumped to six cases. Um, and originally, the health department was saying they didn't think that there was a link between the two. Um, yesterday they said that they they thought that there was, in fact, a link. Uh, And we are expecting to hear an update from Commissioner Mark Levine um, today uh, at the Governor's twice-weekly press conference, so at 11 a.m.
2: Yep, and I should go ahead and promote that. Uh, WDEV, of course, has been broadcasting these live since the inception of these regular news conferences on the state's COVID-19 response. And uh, Governor Phil Scott, other top state officials, including Commissioner Health Commissioner Dr. Mark Levine and uh, several others have been prominent at these events, and uh, they're doing them Tuesdays and Fridays these days. Today, of course, being Tuesday, they will be uh, uh, holding one of these today. And uh, as we say in radio, don't touch that dial when you get to the end of the Dave Graham Show here around 11 o'clock this morning you just uh, stay right where you are and uh, we'll go over to live coverage of the uh, of the of the governor's twice weekly uh news conference and uh so we're we're up to 30 now and is it is it is it assumed or is it known that the two cases uh reported at the Union Elementary School right there in downtown Montpelier, um are those uh, tied to the outbreak uh, uh connected with the uh, Central Vermont Memorial Civic Center Lola?
3: Um yeah so uh as I um just said the health department apparently does believe that there is some link, and we expect to hear more about that um this tuesday and originally they they had said that they did not think so um but apparently there's thinking has changed on that
2: hmm that's a that's an interesting point because obviously that i don't know I, I'm trying to figure out the definition of uh, the people talk about this thing called community spread and um and is would that be an example of that or uh, or are we uh, is that something different? Do we know?
3: Um, I, You know what? That That's a question for a health reporter or a health professional. Uh, yeah, okay. My layman's understanding is that community spread is when you have it um, just in the community in general. I, w- I would imagine that if it was... Kind of contained to a an outbreak, uh, to, to like a cluster of cases that are all interrelated. That that would not necessarily be community spread. But again, this is a, a layperson's understanding, so yeah, um, yeah. Um, People should, yeah. <laughs> I'm just speculating at this point.
2: Sure. Um, well, I, I'm one, I'm wondering also. Um, you've had uh, several excellent stories about just kind of how things are going with education in the uh, in in this weird. New school year of, uh, in the COVID-19 crisis, uh, where folks are actually trying to do school. I mean, it was almost like last spring. There was, uh, it was much more of a shut down feeling, whereas now it's much more of an opened up feeling, even though the COVID, uh, cloud still very much hangs over the whole system. Uh, how, how are things going out there in a broad, broad sense?
3: Yeah. Well, um, and before I get to that, I'll just, uh, I just thought I would note, um, on the kind of transmission question that the, the union elementary cases are interesting. Um, it, I don't think we have seen that many cases in one school yet um, mm-hmm. so far this year, which kind of speaks to, you know, so far it's, it's been pretty good. We, we, we have had cases in schools, but not that many. And the union elementary case, um, according to state officials, seems to be the first instance of transmission within the K to 12 setting. Hmm. So uh, before, um, every other case that's been reported, we had a, a, a little over a dozen, I want to say, um, before the Union Elementary cases. Um, and in every incident, the state said that, you know, the, a person was infected outside the school, that came to the school, and as far as they could tell, no one within the school was subsequently infected, which is great news for our mitigation me- measures. That means that, you know, what we had in place is working, um, Union Elementary, according to the state, was the first instance that they could tell of someone was infected outside the school, but then came to the school, and other people in the school were infected. So that is that is noteworthy. Um,
2: yeah, that is a change. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, is a change. And is it does it sort of make things um, more worrisome, or is there a uh, what's the sense there?
3: Uh, well, I don't I don't know, and we'll we'll be expecting to hear from the health department. Um, one One good thing is that so far, even the new cases at Union Elementary seem to be contained within one classroom. So at least uh, so far we have not seen cases reported outside of this kind of pod structure, and that was one mitigation measure that was come up that schools came up with, which was that you know we'll create kind of self-contained, um, "Quote unquote pods of students and staff that kind of interact together, but not outside. So that if there is a case, at least it does not spread beyond uh, that you know that circle of people within the school. Um, and so far, that seems to have worked at Union Elementary. Although, of course, there could be further cases.
2: Yeah. Um, so. Let's, uh, let's, uh, sort of uh, shift our focus here a little bit if we could to the broader picture and just, uh, I wanted to, I, I did want to sort of get your, your thoughts on how, how do you think overall, you know, you, you, uh, report, you're based in Montpelier, but you report on schools around the state. Uh, how would you say they're adapting to this, uh, weird new world?
3: Well, I would say, you know, from a health perspective, we're doing pretty well. Um, You know, aside from the Union Elementary cases, it seems like everything is really working as it should. We have had cases, but we expected to see cases pop up in schools Um, because if it still exists outside of school, it is eventually going to show up in a school setting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Schools are always reflections of uh, the wider, you know, wider communities' conditions. health or otherwise. Yep, yep. Um, so that's, that hasn't been super surprising, and in general, the numbers have been pretty low, and that's been encouraging. Um, I would say, you know, from, from an educational perspective, things are really tough. Um, I have heard from both students and teachers um, that they think that things are better than last year, right, that the kind of hybrid compromise that a majority of folks landed on is not is not good is not great. <laughs> no one likes it. Yeah. Uh, but that it is better than what we saw in the spring. Um, that there is you know more and better instruction taking place, um, and that even the remote part has improved. That mm-hmm. um, people have learned lessons from that. But, uh, you know, I'm hearing from teachers that particularly the hybrid thing is basically twice the work. It's figuring out how to teach one lesson, you know, two different ways, maybe three different ways if you're in, also in charge of teaching all remote learners. Yeah. Um, and that you also feel as a teacher like you're being kind of half as effective. Um, and so that's really, it's both harder and less rewarding. Um. And that's, that's really tough for educators. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's definitely something. This has taught us that kind of re... You know, we expected schools to re-engineer themselves overnight, and they kind of have, but um, uh, this shows us that, you know, these kind of profound, big-picture changes uh, kind of do, do take a little bit more time um, and work... And uh, practice um, before they're really successful, um, and you know, again, this is this is not because um, the educators of Vermont have not put in an extraordinary amount of of work um, into getting this off the ground. There has been a lot of you know, particularly in the beginning, getting kind of remote work up and running um, was pretty bumpy, especially in some places. I mean, I, I covered one school district that um, didn't have access to remote learning for weeks and weeks into the beginning of the school year because um, the Vermont Virtual Learning Cooperative, which a lot of school districts were relying on, just got swamped with last-minute re- you know requests mm-hmm. and was totally overwhelmed. Um, so they went to a third-party vendor, and that took a really long time to get, get off the ground. So, you know, it's, it, it's been bumpy in a lot of places
2: yeah that that does seem to be the case i mean it's not surprising at all because uh uh a school as an institution is a very complex organism and all of a sudden you're asking it to uh change a lot about what it does and uh in a big way and so nobody should i don't think anybody should be surprised that this is a bumpy road for folks uh it wasn't uh, gonna be a there was no way it was gonna be a a Super smooth transition, but uh one thing that I, you had a really interesting story uh, the other day about uh, teachers who are um, going door to door and sort of tracking down students who maybe haven't been showing up for Zoom meetings and and or, uh, you know, who have been maybe showing up for some but skipping a lot and that sort of thing and trying to connect with the students and uh, their families that way. T- talk to us a little bit about that. How widespread a phenomenon is that in Vermont these days?
3: yeah I don't know how widespread it is um I would say that it is not it is happening in different districts, and I mm-hmm. kind of noticed it it tended to be more rural kind of smaller districts, which makes sense right yeah because if you have more people available you know if you have a kind of lower student to staff ratio um, although you also have a ton more ground to cover if you're if you're rural like literally yep. um, oh yeah sure yeah <laughs> um it's just a little bit more feasible, so I did. I did kind of notice that, but uh, quite a few were doing this, um, and you know, it looked different in different districts. Um, it wasn't always a teacher, although I talked to a preschool teacher that went. Um, that was like, I I think it'll be traumatic for my you know, for the first day of school for these you know three and four year olds
4: mm-hmm. to
3: be you know everyone's masked, uh, mom and dad can't come into the classroom because you know there are no visitors allowed and we have to cut down on, on congregation and I'm just going to have to follow this masked stranger into a room so she was like, my kids are going to be totally freaked out so she went and did home visits with every one of her students before the first day of school um, and that was really successful um, also, it's it's been mainly something that... Um, Educators have been doing to tackle absenteeism because, yeah, a lot of kids aren't showing up for Zoom or showing up for Zoom classes very infrequently. Um, And in a lot of cases with counselors doing this or, you know, I I talked to one principal who was doing this. um, And I thought it was really interesting because this seems to be actually an example of something that will could likely be kind of carried over post-pandemic as just kind of a, a, you know, a really good practice that people uh, kind of found in a time of crisis and yeah, yep. realized actually worked really well. Um, obviously, these are, you know, socially distanced home visits. People stay outside. Uh, they're masked. Mm-hmm. I talked to one counselor who was driving around Orange County um, looking for kids with a um, six foot long uh wooden plank. Um, you know, he he would uh once he would, you know, get to a, a student's home he'd put it on the on the ground to make sure that they were um always at least six feet apart.
2: Yeah. yeah. Um before, I, that was a really yeah. that, that was a very colorful and terrific detail you had in your story there. I said, Wow, that's really that's pretty clever. and I think it's partly also designed I mean I, I wonder if there's a little humor there to uh Try to put people at ease and that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I mean it's a it's, it's a gimmick, um, yeah, and it's yeah. it, it is a gimmick that that is there to put you know people at ease. Um, and I think also just you know in, in moments like this, people people like um, I don't know just the standardization and some sort of something that they can kind of rely on. Yeah. Um, yeah you know it's 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 one little piece of certainty
2: we are definitely six feet apart <laughs> yeah Lola i'm wondering you were mentioning a moment ago the um the sense of many teachers that they're working twice as hard and getting less than, i don 't know getting half as much done or whatever with this hybrid learning uh and I'm wondering um what do you think or has anybody really produced any any solid uh, uh estimation of what will the long term impact be? On kids' educations, are the kids who uh, maybe are sophomores in high school right now, when they graduate in a couple of years, will they have been well uh, as well educated as kids who graduated, say, in
3: 2019? Well, no, <laughs> they won't, um, and that's that's not you know anybody's fault. Um, but I, I I haven't heard one like a single teacher or administrator. Uh, or students say, "Oh yes, I'm I'm learning as much as I used to." Um, I I think that that's that's universal. That that is across the country. I mean, there you know there have been studies, like kind of preliminary studies done, kind of estimating how much quote unquote you know uh, learning loss we are going to see. Um,
4: yeah. So.
3: Yeah, yeah, I mean, this this will dramatically kind of impact the amount of learning where about where you know, kids are able to receive. Um, if there's a silver lining, it's that it you know at least like most everyone in the same is in the same boat. Although actually, I, I shouldn't say that because a big problem too with this kind of setup is that it is extraordinarily inequitable. So we we, we can expect that, you know, those who can afford private tutors, those who have really good Wi-Fi connections, those who have just a quiet place to work at, at home, um, you know, are going to be able to make a lot more progress than their less advantaged peers. And that was always true, but um, COVID has absolutely, uh, you know, entrenched that dynamic, made it worse, just in innumerable ways. Um, and so that is, you know, this is the, I I would expect the quote unquote achievement gap, right? So the achievement gap is usually measured, uh, you know, with test scores, graduation rates, but especially test scores, you know, and it's and it's the gap we see over and over again between how quote well, uh, you know, more affluent, um, yeah kids do um white kids do um students that don't have disabilities do um than than their peers and i think we can generally expect that to widen this year um and uh and and that's that that is obviously a huge problem um i don't know that we have i think there is That is certainly an argument for more in-person learning. Mm -hmm. Um, But in a lot of places, I don't know that we can do more in-person learning without, um, without you know, kind of dangerously increasing the amount of density in a classroom. Yeah. Um, So this is a really hard thing to balance. I I think there's also an argument there for maybe prioritizing um, certain kids' For more of a return to the classroom than others, I know that some school a lot of school districts prioritize kids with disabilities for more in person learning, right, um, right? Which is, I mean, I think in in my opinion, the right call. Um, and so I think I think if anything, that's that's a that's a call for more of that, right? Of like really figuring out who's vulnerable and prioritizing them for as much in person support as possible where it is safe. Um, but, yeah, are, are, are kids going to be learning as much this year? No. Yeah. Um, absolutely not. Um, and I, I, I don't think that can be the standard because it's just, um, it's it's literally not possible.
2: What, are there any districts in Vermont that have, you know, have really made uh, strides or, or, you know, sort of scored some success at all? in trying to address the social inequities you were just talking about and how they show up in education. They've always shown up in education, but it seems like a lot of this stuff is really laid bare in this coronavirus crisis that, um, you know, whatever inequities existed before seems maybe starker or even, you know, somewhat increased or exaggerated.
3: Um, I, I can't think of a standout. I, I do think that in general, you know, most... Um, administrators and teachers I talked to are, are trying to think about that and how they kind of re-engineer this year. Like I said, a lot of districts, if not most, prioritize um, uh, students with disabilities uh, for more in-person instructions. You know, I, I, I heard parents saying, you know, like my, um, especially, you know, I was, I was seeing this a lot in the places that had the the hybrid learning reopening plans two days of in-person instruction so um, often in that case you know you had kids with um, IEPs who were actually coming in for four days of in-person instruction so twice as many days um, to try and you know catch them up um, although i haven't i haven't heard about that as much with for example kids on pre-reduced lunch um hmm. so yeah
2: it's a uh, it, it, a lot of problems to solve, which uh, we're going to get you back on our program from time to time to fill us in on how it's going out there, Lola Dufford. I really appreciate your help understanding these education issues. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. No, no
3: worries. Thanks for having
2: me. Already, Lola Dufford, a BG digger, and. Uh, we're going to be heading into a bottom of the hour break for some CBS news, a couple of words from our sponsors, and uh, when we return, we're going to be talking with the blogger uh, Kevin Ellis about uh, some interesting commentary he wrote last week on our two U.S. senators. We'll be back.
5: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren's store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
6: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM.
2: We are back. Uh, thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our broadcast this uh, this Tuesday morning, October the twentieth, twenty twenty. Two weeks from today, November third. I don't know if anybody has a sort of a little tickler in their brain saying, "What is November third again?" Oh yeah, it's that thing we call Election Day. Of course, these days we have uh, more like Election Season. If you want, if you're so moved to vote today, go ahead knock yourselves out you got the mail-in ballot go ahead and fill it out get it back down to your town or city clerk or put it in the mail i think they've uh i've seen starting to see recommendations that if you wanted to do uh, the postal situation uh, best to get it in the mail by the end of the week this week gives them all the time in the world to uh, get that delivered uh, down to your uh, city and town clerk's office so it can be counted on uh, november 3rd very very important there folks and Obviously, this election is drawing a lot of attention. Hey, uh, one of the possible outcomes of this election, people are starting to speculate that pr- there's a chance that the Democratic Party might take control of the U.S. Senate. And uh, that could have a big impact on a couple people we know by the name of uh, Patrick Leahy and Bernie Sanders. They are Vermont's two U.S. Senators. And here to discuss all of this with us is uh, a, a person who's uh, got a, a burgeoning blog out there on the Vermont and national issues, a former Burlington Free Press reporter who went on uh, to a successful career lobbying at the state house for a variety of clients, and uh, now he's blogging, and his name is Kevin Ellis, and he's been a guest on the Dave Graham Show two or three times before. We really appreciate his insights, and I believe he's on the phone with us. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for joining me.
0: Good morning, David.
2: So your blog last week was talking about uh, just what uh, what things might look like for uh, for Patrick Leahy and uh, and Bernie Sanders. Tell us uh, what you found as you looked into this.
0: Well, Dave, it, if if the uh, in the coming election, if the Democrats were to take over the United States Senate, uh, of, as everyone knows, that means that the party in control changes. Yep. And so you'd see Chuck Schumer to be the Majority Leader, but you would what you would see is that Senator Leahy and Sanders would immediately become chairs of of very powerful committees. So uh, Leahy's made it clear he would like to chair the Senate Appropriations Committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't seen Bernie talk much about this, but Bernie is the ranking member of the Senate Budget Committee, uh, which is not all that powerful, but it it is influential in lots of ways. Uh, So. It basically, two Vermonters. If the Senate were to go Democratic, two Vermonters would pretty much control how the how federal all federal dollars are spent. Wow! And as I point out, <laughs> that's the that's the Pentagon. That's everything from the Pentagon to public broadcasting to the National Endowment for the Arts to the CIA to to everything the State Department. Uh, every, anything, you know, transportation funds, roads and bridges. So all of that would go through the Senate Appropriations Committee uh, and the Budget Committee. So it gives uh, Vermonters a huge voice, and it gives Leahy and Sanders a huge amount of power in terms of how federal money is spent.
2: Have they been saying much about this? Have either of them uh, been talking up their their possible uh, futures here?
0: Not really. I mean, I I actually had a conversation with Senator Leahy uh, recently, um, but about about some of this, you know, he could also chair the Senate Judiciary Committee. He has lots of choices. Mm-hmm. Um, he has chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee in the past, and that puts him, as I point out in the blog, it puts him on television a lot because of the Supreme Court issues. Yep. Um, but he's, I think. I think Senator Leahy has kind of been there, done that with the Judiciary Committee, um, and he, he, I think he would stay on the Judiciary Committee uh, where he is now, and so he, he'd have a major voice in the judgeship issues. But I think the chair of the Appropriations Committee is a kind of a career-crowning uh, uh, position that uh, that he'd really like. Yeah, it comes with a hu- huge amount of power. That is a, that,
2: that's a pretty... Uh a pretty amazing um, possibility there. I mean, obviously, we shouldn't. Uh, what is it? Uh, count our chickens before they hatch, or whatever. But uh, what are we? Re- what are we hearing? What are you? I mean, are you following the national polls? And are we getting indications as to whether the Democrats have a good chance of, ta- of taking the Senate, or uh, is it a long shot? Or where are we now, and all that?
0: I think, I think, I do follow the polls and I think, uh, it's a 50-50 proposition at the moment.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
0: it, as, and with Biden, uh, leading in polls, uh, and again, you're right, we shouldn't trust polls. We trusted them in 2016. Everything was wrong. Uh, so, but, but that doesn't mean you can't look at them. And it's pretty clear that, that, uh, in states like Maine, Colorado, Montana, Arizona, um, I, I believe. I believe Democrats have to flip three states Democratic to take over the Senate, and if that and if that happens, uh, Leahy and Sanders are suddenly uh, chairs of committees. So yeah, uh, and it's and that's fairly likely. Um, you know, if, if Maine, Colorado, and Arizona go Democratic, and it looks like they're going to, um, then that that eventuality is going to happen.
2: Yep. And um, well I you know again we'll 50-50 right now but I uh, I suspect that the uh, that'll be a closely watched uh, situation for sure nationwide. Um Kevin, I you know I wonder your your sense of um, let's let's talk a little bit about the overall trajectory of this campaign right now. Um, and uh, you know I was just reading in the Washington Post this morning that uh uh, the president seems to be in a fairly uh, in a fairly desperate situation where he's doing a lot of scattershot stuff um, is he uh, does he have the the what it what it might take to really turn this thing around at this point I mean it does look like he's he is uh, not doing well in the polls but uh, what um, what can he do
0: well he's just trashed uh, Anthony fauci and now he's on Fox uh sort of trashing him again, calling him a Democrat. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, you know, Trump is the kind of guy who never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, that is who he is. It's pretty clear that he's not going to change who he is. Um, it's not, he's not suddenly going to show up at the next debate polite and professional. Uh, that's not how he got where he got so he's gonna continue to be exactly who he is and his supporters admire him for that uh, all the all the baggage be damned they they believe that he's a guy who tells it like it is and he's an outsider who's gonna drain the swamp so you know in I mean I've been watching this for 30 years and our my uh, I learned this from an from an old mentor of mine who said a dead Republican gets 40 percent uh, <laughs> in a place in a place like Vermont. So, you know, I don't know whether this election means that this is a Biden landslide where Trump, you know, gets only the people who really believe in him uh, or whether like 2016, there's a there's a there's an unseen uh, block of voters out there that aren't showing up in polls that are truly passionate for the president
4: mm-hmm. that
0: uh that means that biden goes down the way hillary clinton went down i i uh it's it's impossible to read but I, I do think there are lots of sort of differences between now and four years ago the virus being the being the most important
2: yeah, yeah factor sure. yep
0: so anyway well one
2: of the uh one of the questions i've had about this also and I, and i i I'm surprised I'm, we're not really see, hearing more discussion of this, uh, but um, I think there's a lot of resentment among among Trump's core supporters of, uh, you know, they, they, they bash the media all the time, and so when pollsters come around and say, hi, I'm doing a poll for the Washington Post or the New York Times or CBS or whatever, um, how big is the phenomenon possibly of uh, the respondent to the poll basically just sort of playing games and, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Biden, and then, you know, muttering to him or herself in the background, yeah, right, you know. Um yeah. Et cetera. I mean, is that a factor? And if so, how do pollsters uh, kind of counterweight that?
0: I don't know that they... and it's... I think it's a real issue. Uh, I think people's... I think Trump's voters are really, really passionate, and voters... On the far left, are not passionate. Um, so I, I think the the passion factor is on Trump's side. The passion factor on the Democratic side is all of, is anti-Trump. It's not it's not so much pro-Biden, but it's anti-Trump. I do think I would say this. Unlike Hillary Clinton, who who was weighed down by baggage that was made produced over decades, Uh, there's a there is a uh, for good or bad, there is a a notion of Joe Biden as as a a good guy
4: Mm -hmm.
0: that uh, Hillary Clinton never achieved fairly or unfairly. Uh, And and it may be that, you know, with Trump being as irascible and rude and nasty as he was in that debate and every time he talks. That uh, juxtaposed against Biden, who is, uh you know, I think if you ask people, they'd say, well, well, he's a good guy Uh against his his basic humanity, losing a wife and a, and a child in a car crash early yeah. in his career, et cetera, et cetera. The guy has suffered a lot. And juxtaposed against Trump's behavior, I think that makes part of this race very much different than 2016.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, the, the personality basis. I, I also, tell me what you think of this theory about, about 2016. Um, I, I think there was a, there was a real undercurrent of, uh, of Hillary Clinton, uh, definitely being of the 1%. And I say that because, um, I, you know, you, you saw things like, like her, her, spe- her six figure speeches, uh, to Goldman, people at Goldman Sachs, and then her refusal to say, what she told them to release the transcripts of those speeches and so on. Uh, yeah. I, I, I thought that, that, that that really sent a message to people, uh, that, you know, you're excluded from the centers of power in America and I'm in the centers of power and, uh, this is, uh, this is how it all goes folks and, you know, tough cookies basically. Uh, and, and meanwhile, historically the Democrats tried to present themselves as the party of the working person, and and uh, you know the lunch bucket party or whatever, now we have the basically this person who really looked in that instance like kind of a plutocrat, and 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 then called half the working class in the United States deplorables. So, um, what do you think about that as a theory?
0: I agree with it a hundred percent. The they, um, the the books must have been written, and if they haven't been written yet, they will be written, and that is the the abandonment of the of the working person by the democratic party uh in favor of uh wall street uh so that they and silicon valley so that they could raise money yeah uh the the passage of nafta um i have a pet phrase that i use a lot at the end of discussions like this which is bernie was right <laughs> and You know, Bernie railing against Wall Street and these trade deals for years and years and years. He foresaw what Trump actually acted on. And, you know, Hillary Clinton had so much baggage. And those Goldman Sachs speeches were part of a massive baggage that she had to wear around her neck in 2016. And you can make a long list of the mistakes that were made in that campaign. And those Goldman Sachs speeches you know, if she had made those speeches at, uh, oh, I don't know, some other really big bank that does terrible things, it might not have been so bad. But Goldman Sachs is the, <laughs> is the poster child for the 2008 recession that destroyed the careers of millions of, of Americans who lost their homes.
2: Yeah, no, you're right.
0: And she, and she was clueless about it. She was always clueless about it. She should have released them. Um I think Trump not releasing his tax returns is really going to hurt him. Um
2: I actually I, think I just, less so. I, I think less so than with uh with Clinton because with, it, with Clinton's refusal to release the speeches actually was more of a of an anomaly in the overall picture people have of the Democratic Party than Trump's refusal to, to release his tax returns. I mean, everybody knows Trump is a rich guy who does all sorts of stuff Behind the scenes that he doesn't want people to know about. I mean, that's sort of the part of the package.
0: Baked in. Right? Yeah, it's, it's part, it's part of the package. You're exactly right. In that's
2: the case true. of the, the Goldman Sachs speeches with Hillary Clinton, you know, that was more of an anomaly against the, you know, the background of, and certainly then her failure to go to Michigan and Wisconsin and so on just says to those lunch bucket people out there, we really don't care about you. We, we just don't have any time for you. And, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, when did the Democratic Party go from being Huey Long in Louisiana taking care of, uh, or James Michael Curley in Boston taking care of lunch bucket Democratic working people to raising money on Wall Street and uh, rewarding donors with nights in the Lincoln bedroom? That that shift is, to me, what lost her the election.
2: Imagine for a moment that the polls are correct and that Joe Biden actually does uh, score a pretty healthy victory over uh over the incumbent president Donald Trump um, it seems like there are a lot of people out there who are uh angry and ready to get angry and etc. and uh what does qAnon do in the event of a Biden victory
0: well i think they uh take their message right to the bank just like fox news does and they grow their membership Uh, I mean, uh, a Biden victory means that Democrats will be in control of the country, Mm -hmm. and and that allows all these right wing organizations to raise money by telling by telling their members and prospective members that the world's coming to an end, that Biden is a pedophile who's going to, uh, you know, and and, and hordes of criminals are going to break into your house and uh, when, in fact, you know, Biden is I mean, I've known that I've known I've covered Joe Biden. I've known about him since I've known him since 1984. I mean, he's about as moderate as they come. He's about the least socialist politician that I can possibly think of. And so but 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 no doubt, QAnon and all those groups will raise money against the notion that uh, the socialists are going to be knocking on their door to take their guns
2: yeah well um and i i wonder also about the the role here that uh, there there's this whole conversation that goes on all the time in the united states these days about uh, people being overly pc or whatever and that there's this uh, uh you see all these memes online and so forth and actually you know even a, a, a an alleged liberal like bill uh, bill Marr frequently plays on this thing where he thinks that uh, that the left has just gone crazy with Trying to be politically correct and so so on, um, is that going to be a big feature of all the pushback in in the uh, in the coming uh, years, or will Joe Biden's sort of uh, traditional, you know, we keep using the phrase lunch bucket, but that sensibility from him uh, help to blunt some of the, some of that.
0: I think that sensibility in him blunts some of that, but but I I'm the first to admit that there's some some. PC stuff going on in the Democratic Party that uh, you know is I think less of a democrat versus republican issue than it is just cultural uh you know my view is that you know we white men are watching a, a, an enormous transition going on in the culture before our eyes and we have to wake up and be part of it or we're going to be swept out to sea uh the you know <laughs> We've been living high on the hog for a long, long time and, uh, women and people of color and gays and lesbians are saying we've been put down for, for centuries and it's time for us to have our seat at the table. And Democrats have to embrace that. Uh, th- and Republicans skillfully point that out as PC when in fact it's just, it's a, it's a massive cultural change that's been a long time coming. Whether it's Me Too or what have you,
2: yeah, I mean that's the, you hear these phrases like social justice warrior and so on, and um, and I sometimes want to want to sort of reply to it by saying, so are you a, are you a warrior opposed to social justice? Is is, right. is the idea of having a just society a bad thing? Um, right. And, and, and I do think that there is, I, but I think, I think some of the, some of this again goes to tone and the idea that you have to, um, recognize that, uh, um, that, that you're trying to bring people along. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it's, it's going to be a tricky business. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to take just the right, I think, uh, blend of, uh, of common sense approaches and, uh, pushing for progress. That uh, that will be uh, most effective. I I think that that the idea I hear from some on the left that that we can uh, use whatever uh, stylistic approach or rhetoric we want and just leave in the dust anybody who's not along for the ride uh, probably is not the best way to go. I think you're going to want to see uh, people be. Go yeah well come on I mean of course we uh, we don't mind a slight change in vocabulary from time to time or whatever because we're just trying to be polite and and uh, and help people feel comfortable and so on and so forth I I mean is that is that the yeah. right way to go or do you think I'm I, I
0: well I'm you know I I'm sometimes an incrementalist and sometimes a bomb thrower and I yeah. I, I lean I lean towards the incremental side on this one I mean it, it change comes slowly it's a big country. It's a huge government, and um, it's uh, you can't do it overnight.
2: Can't do it overnight. Well, we are not going to do it on this uh, segment of the Dave Graham Show either. We're, instead, we're going to have to say thank you very much, Kevin Ellis, for joining us this morning. We'll continue this conversation at another time. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. Alrighty. Thank you, Dave. Hey, let's go to uh, top of the hour break for some CBS News, a couple words from our sponsors. And when we return, we're going to be speaking with one of our CBS News correspondents. So stay with us, folks.
5: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren's store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our Rockin' Deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
7: It's the
2: Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our program on this Tuesday morning, October the 20th. and. Uh, we uh, love to uh, chat with our uh, CBS News correspondents uh, individually at the uh, just after the CBS News at the mid-show break here, and I believe we're going to be speaking with Pam Falk. And uh, is she on the line right now? Uh, let's,
6: yes, hi Dave.
2: Hey, Pam, how are you doing?
6: Good, exciting live broadcast. Well, yeah. <laughs> really, <laughs> these pre- days, I mean, you can't even keep. I mean, Twitter can't keep up with the changing news, so it's great.
2: It, it's a just uh, yeah. So what, what are the uh, what are the headlines on the global uh, scene? The
6: headlines on the global front, Dave. Sorry, are that uh, the world has passed forty million cases. Yep. Uh, it's really a grim milestone with uh, over a million deaths, a, a million one point one million deaths, and you're seeing the U.S. still top the list you've been talking about surges in the united states with two way up two states way up uh, about 26 states still surging uh, but uh, on the global list it's the u.s india brazil um russia are topping the list but you're seeing the european nations also with a major with major surges um, ireland will be the first european union country to return to an entire lockdown hmm. uh, the prime minister said that the nationwide stay-at-home orders in effect schools are staying open But um, only essential workers can go uh, to work. Bars and restaurants are limited to takeaway or delivery, takeout. Uh, Everyone in the country is being asked to stay at home. And this is coming, as you mentioned, as in the United States, there's – Uh, the same issue. And this, uh, all of it is coming when there's a triple hit. There's COVID, there's climate change, there's a severe global recession, and they're all related in large part to COVID-19. Now the IMF said this week that the world pandemic-related recession will shrink the entire world economy by 4.5% in 2020. So, uh, that's the worst since the Great Depression. So, uh, the combination of all of it, and storms hitting hitting U.S. states and hitting uh, international areas that can't afford it, it makes coronavirus um, response much, much more difficult. So, in the United States, eight million more people have have slipped into poverty. And um, we saw that the uh, food banks are, are now in need in the United States, so that um, the Feeding America Food bank organization said eight billion, not million, billion meals uh, will be short. Uh, in the coming year and um and that uh, jobless claims are obviously up, so that is is much worse on the global scale uh two hundred seventy million people uh, don't know where their next meal is coming from, so it's uh it's it's it is the perfect storm,
2: yeah, it's really a bad scene out the out there there one if there's one silver lining uh, someone told me the other day that it looked like at least in some places, and I wanted to ask kind of what the world worldwide report is on this, uh, that the death rate from coronavirus, the actual mortality from this disease, seems to be on the decline. Do you know about that?
6: Yes, they they have looked. I mean, now, you know, the more numbers they get, the more they can get recoveries. Um, the global death rate is, as the numbers of the cases go up, the the percentage of global deaths are going down doesn't necessarily mean that global deaths are going down, my doctor experts tell me. Yeah. Uh, but um, And that may get worse with, with countries not being able to deal with surges. In other words, not enough beds, not enough food, not enough supplies. But with 40 million uh, cases and 1 million deaths, uh, you see a lot more recovery than you did before.
2: Is is there any any specific reason for that, or therapies coming along that are that are found to be helpful, or is it really just a no, matter?
6: No, there's still nothing. I mean, you know, there's uh, they, they are working on the vaccine, 170 different vaccines. Uh, pre, I think I mentioned President Putin uh, offered uh, Russia's first, vac- you know, they touted it as the first vaccine out, we offered it to UN staff, but no one at my end is standing in line for it, but. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the UN is coordinating, uh, it's called the COVAX program, and they're trying to coordinate all the vaccines. Now each country would give their people the vaccines first, needless to say, but it shares information patents everything else so that as countries are able to sell vaccines they're able to um, sell them around the world and so that doesn't answer your question but it is an important aspect the u.s has not joined this program um, but um, most other countries have and so the idea is to is to get the best. Information of vaccines out there. Now that said, um, the reason for less deaths is that the world is trying to get more PPE, more protective equipment, and more information out there about about masks and about hand washing, and that has uh, made sure, or at least helped, the fact that the heavy loads of the virus are not being passed on, so people have lesser cases. That's what the doctors seem to think, why the death rate has gone down. Uh, but it's, um, it's pretty amazing how much uh, the, the food programs and everything else are trying to get in there, because that's what's also key. I mean, if you, people have coronavirus and all of a sudden they're not working, uh, the family needs food, uh, yeah. so because mothers, fathers, and kids work in, around the world in developing countries, and so what you saw was the uh, World Food Program got the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and the World Food Program is an interesting uh, U.N. agency. It's um, funded by voluntary uh, donations, so they're trying to get a lot more money. But they buy from American farmers as well as farmers around the world, and they distribute around the world. Um, uh, to uh, countries where, as, as, as the head said, 270 million people are living hand to mouth. So uh, I think it's the combination of the world coming together to try to get um, the resources needed for really poor countries to deal with coronavirus is why there's a lower death rate, is what I've been told.
2: When you look at the sort of three uh, leaders, and I put leaders in quotation marks because uh, it's not a it's a dubious <laughs> distinction, but in the coronavirus right now, which are the U.S., uh, Brazil, and India, uh, right. you know, historically, certainly uh, Brazil and India have been poorer countries than the U.S. Um, how are how are Brazil and India doing in combating the coronavirus related to the U.S.? Is, are they uh, are they really ha- having a greater struggle? One would think so, just by sort of. Where they stood historically.
6: You think so I mean the numbers are obviously lower in India's about seven million cases, Brazil's about five million cases, US is over eight million cases. So um, per capita, um, it's it's uh it's low it's lower in the United States, but the point is that the numbers are really high in the United States. So Canada, for example, Dave just closed the borders again to the United States saying we can't afford to have infection from the United States. So it is sort of I mean everyone around the world diplomats have continue to ask me at the United Nations why is the most developed country, the only superpower left in the world um being a more hit than everybody else. I mean, don't you have resources? Don't you have uh, remedies? Don't you have any kind of things? Um, you know, the president gets up and says, he, you know, he took remsevere and he's, he's cured. Why is the United States so heavily hit? Um, and no one really has the answer, except that it it, it just may have been mismanaged from the beginning. Uh, we hear from Dr. Fauci, who's under fire as well yeah. um, these days. So, uh, but India has come around to a very, very proactive Modi. The, uh, Narendra Modi has come around to a very proactive. Um, Public service campaign to make sure that people don't wash their hands in public water, that they uh, use soap. Uh, Brazil with Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro who also got coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, both U.S. and Brazil, the leaders got coronavirus, so um, they're they're pretty active. Brazil is in um, uh, reversing uh, both past. so out being very flip about it so uh yeah. they, they're starting to turn the tide but um it's it's those are the three that are really high
2: yeah it, it is and, and what is the what is the thinking internationally when people see something like president trump really showing a lot of disrespect for his infectious disease expert anthony fauci uh what, what how do international health leaders regard that
6: well, they sort of roll their eyes. Um, they a lot of countries come from places that aren't democracies, so they sort of look at the U.S. as coming around to their side. Um, mm-hmm. Uh where where everything is coming out whatever comes out of the uh the White House or the executive branches is gospel. So uh they're they're sitting there saying, uh, you know, if you can't do it, what are we supposed to do? I mean the US is the biggest contributor to all multilateral institutions, UN, IMF and um They think uh, and they also see they're very worried about if there is a downturn and they see this kind of divisiveness, especially with going not by science, but by politics, they see it as what does it mean for the economy? Because everything will end up. With a downturn,
4: because
6: yep. in the end, uh, the markets uh, respond to the way people see things. And, and the more coronavirus surges in the United States, the more the economy is starting to tank. And then they get hit. You know, the old saying is if the U.S. gets a cold, uh, you know, the rest of the world gets a fever and so they're worried and um, look the european tri- union tried to sort of separate itself and be more more integrated in their own trade but it's still a, look it's a global world and so uh, if anything has taught the world that it's coronavirus so uh there uh, some people are starting to think about how to deal with the next pandemic but right now they're just trying to get yeah uh, you know, they're swimming trying to keep their heads above water in this one
2: yeah for sure well let's hope that uh, things get better uh, pam falk of cbs news thank you so much for joining us this morning and sharing your time with us uh, really uh, good job absolutely
6: enjoy Alrighty. the live broadcast nice talking to you dave
2: take care the um Questions about uh, computer technology have come to the fore recently because last week, uh, the big story in the New York Post has since been... uh i guess uh the best phrase to describe it is all but debunked i I don't know or maybe completely debunked uh a lot of questions have been raised about it including the fact that the uh, reporter assigned to work on the story wanted to take his byline off it and i've worked in newsrooms before and i know that that is a really tough decision on the part of a reporter and it's basically a reporter's non-endorsement of uh what the story is uh is saying um and the um uh, the, the New York Post had this big story about Hunter Biden supposedly getting an email from a uh, an executive uh, or an advisor to Burisma, the uh, Ukrainian energy company. And the email allegedly demonstrated that uh, Hunter was going to be setting up a meeting between the uh, Ukrainian executive and Hunter Biden's father, uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president, who is now the Democratic nominee uh, running for president of the United States. And so, you know, the, it raises the whole specter of influence peddling and all that sort of thing. If true, uh, turns out there's a lot of questions around the, uh, the underlying story here, including, uh, the fact that, uh, it came to the New York Post via, uh, Rudy Giuliani, who is a lawyer for President Trump and who has, uh, a lot of, uh, stories have come out in the media over the past week or so and even earlier indicating that Mr. Giuliani has been working, uh, fairly closely with, uh, people tied to russian intelligence over in the ukraine so uh and we know the russians have uh have a habit of trying to interfere in, a, in our elections in uh, no small way by uh, uh spewing disinformation out there getting bad stories out there that aren't really very solid uh that raise um uh, raise negative uh, views and opinions about certain politicians of course in this case this is uh, joe biden because he is he is uh, running opposed to the uh the Russians' uh, f- favored candidate here the incumbent president donald trump and uh but underlying all of that there's this other question uh because uh the uh, the the laptop hard drive on which uh, the story is supposedly based was allegedly handed off by a uh, computer tech repair person uh a computer repair person who's running a shop in wilmington delaware Handed off to a lawyer working with uh, Rudolph Giuliani. And, um, this raised a question in my mind about the idea of can you go to your computer repair shop to get your whatever on your computer fixed and uh, be confident in the idea that that repair shop isn't going to willy nilly share a copy of your hard drive. With whoever, and uh, uh, I decided that maybe what we need to do here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM is bring in a couple of computer techs who uh, know this business and can tell us. Uh, you know, are there any ethical standards about maintaining confidentiality? Are um, are there any? Uh, are there any? Is there any thought given to uh, making sure that uh, the uh, clients' material, which they have on their computer, whether it be it emails or texts or, or anything really, uh, remain private? And uh so here we are. We are now going to bring on a couple of uh, folks who are uh, technologists here locally in the central Vermont area. Uh, Fred Wilt is the proprietor of the computer barn on the uh, Barry Montpelier Road. And uh, he joins us by telephone this morning. I believe he's on the line right now. Good morning, Fred.
7: Good morning. Can you hear me? I'm on speakerphone.
2: I can hear you. Thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, Reuben Bennett of RB Technologies, based in East Montpelier. Uh, RB Technologies does a lot of networking network work for uh, a wide variety of Vermont businesses. And uh, Ruben, I believe you, we had a little trouble <laughs> getting your phone number to work, but I think we finally got you this morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us.
8: Good morning. How are
2: you? I'm doing all right. Uh So... Let's see here. I, I guess I'll start with you, uh, uh, Fred and ask, um, you know, you run the kind of business where this is very common for you. Somebody just walks in. I did this last week. I had a problem with my, uh, my, my laptop and I pulled up at the computer barn and I walked in and I said, my laptop isn't talking to the internet these days. How can you help me? And, uh, and, you know, a day later or so I came over and paid a little bill and got my laptop back and it's been fine. And, uh, and by the way, I appreciate the good work. Uh, but, um, this is, uh, sort of like what Hunter Biden did, although there are some questions about, uh, he didn't pick up his machine. Apparently, he just dropped it off there and, uh, and never showed up to get it again. And the allegation is when he did show up at the shop to drop it off, he was allegedly inebriated somehow. So I, I don't know what all that means or whether it <laughs> matters, but, Anyway um, maybe he forgot where he dropped his his laptops off uh, Fred what, what do you what do you make of this case and and how would you handle uh, handle the um, uh, situation differently from the way this guy in this computer computer tech in Wilmington Delaware handled it
7: well I'd like to say uh, something to preempt that and then I would like to actually turn that answer over to my head tech okay. Who- is our software. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I spoke with you earlier, uh, the state of Vermont um, wipes their hands of any security or personal data information, and it's they claim it's the sole responsibility of the owner of the electronic device being dropped at this location for recycling. Now, that's a different story than bringing it in as a customer, and I would uh, like my to just kind of give you a rundown on how we handle it. Okay, and and Hello. what is
2: your, who, who, who are we speaking with now?
9: My name's Miles. How are you?
2: Miles, I'm good. How are you doing?
9: Good.
2: I think I probably oh. talked to you across the counter last week. <laughs> Very well, Paul. I, yeah, anyway.
9: Uh, so, you know, in the realm of abandoned devices, because it actually happens quite a bit, uh, huh. believe it or not, people just don't come and get their things. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Um, so we usually go uh, 60 to 90 days um, from the time, like, we'll spend a month trying to get in touch with somebody. Yep. And then we usually go another 60 to 90 days, um, but then the device will get recycled. And at that point, we usually um, physically destroy the storage device, whether that's a hard drive or a solid state drive. Mm -hmm. So it'll physically get destroyed so nothing can be recovered off
2: it. I see. And um, have you ever had a situation where anybody came in and asked you for someone else's uh, hard drive or, or solid-state drive or whatever?
9: So we always ask that um, if anybody else is going to pick up the device, we have to have their name, and they have to bring in, We, as you came through, we gave you a piece of paper saying you, you left the device with us. Um, so they usually have to bring that paper in.
2: As in the, the receipt that you do at a lot of repair shops for a, v- a wide variety of different things that people get fixed, you get a little tag or, you know, a classic dry cleaner receipt or something. I mean, that's fairly normal, I would think, routine part of the business.
7: Absolutely. And it, it, it actually identifies the model and make of the machine.
2: So, uh, um, what do you think, Miles, of the, uh, of, of what this uh, computer tech in uh, Delaware allegedly did in terms of first, uh, calling the fbi and 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 then the fbi subpoenaed the uh the hard drive but i don't think they necessarily would have known about it without him calling them and then secondly um having a um having a uh uh this other instance where this lawyer comes into the shop and says hi i'd like to get a copy of this hard drive off of hunter biden's uh device and i guess the answer was sure here you go (laughs) what do you make of that
9: I, I mean, for us, we we wouldn't have even known the email was there because our standard practice is, is we don't look at any data or anything. We only go in there for the point of whatever the, the problem is.
2: Yeah, yeah. So
9: if you come in and say you can't connect to the Internet. We're going to check network settings and things like that, but we're not going to open your email program up because we have no reason to be in there. And, you know, with a code of ethics and everything, we keep our contact as, small as we can to achieve the job requested. So, if, you know, if you came in saying you can't connect or something, I don't know why somebody would be checking email.
7: Of course, we can't even check your emails because we don't have your login. Right. We well, don't take that information.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's uh, part of a uh, uh, some protection there. And, I mean, do you, are there ways that, uh, that um, the FBI could have gotten into that email uh without the password of
7: course, of course. Uh, the, the government can do anything it wants
2: uh Ruben bennett um i i was talking to you yesterday uh rb technologies and um we just have a couple of minutes to go before the bottom of the hour break and i want to talk about this more after the break but uh the question came up uh, i i was asking you whether people who are working in in uh, information technology have any kind of an ethics code that governs uh you know the confidentiality of client or customer data and that sort of thing uh quick answer yes or no Uh
8: short answer uh we have a code but it's uh it's very informal and it's not enforced in any way
2: And um, Fred Wilt or, or Miles from uh, Computer Barn um you guys talk about an internal code there. Uh, nothing imposed from the outside, right? There's no professional association that says here's how you have to behave no, or anything. It's imposed
7: from the outside, but we do have a system in place internally.
2: Hmm, that's uh, that's interesting. We should talk more about that as well uh, after the uh, brief break. We're going to do for a CBS News minute at the bottom of the hour here, um, and the and then we'll um, uh, also get a couple words from our sponsors in, and uh, we'll. I'll be back with uh, more of our conversation with uh, Fred Wild and uh, Miles of the Computer Barn and then also uh, Ruben Bennett of RB Technologies. Hey, I uh, want to remind you all of a news conference coming up right after the Dave Graham Show today. Governor Phil Scott and other top state officials talking about the coronavirus and the state's response, a regular Tuesday and Friday thing these days always carried live on WDEV, so don't forget about that just after 11 o'clock. Let's go to that bottom-of-the-hour break for CBS News. We'll be back shortly, folks.
5: Exciting things are happening in Warren Village. The Pitcher Inn and Warren store are under new management. Upgrades and improvements are in the works, maintaining the ambiance and character while breathing new energy and resources into these iconic properties. We are open while practicing all CDC protocols. Come for lunch at our rockin' deli and see for yourself what the buzz is all about. Both businesses are hiring, especially seeking fine dining room staff and sales associates for our boutique. Still fun, funky, and friendly, but better than ever. Open daily on Main Street, Warren Village.
6: It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV-FM and AM.
2: We're talking with uh, Fred Wilt of uh, Computer Barn. He uh, has a brick and mortar computer repair shop on the Barry Montpelier Road, kind of over near the uh, Price Chopper Plaza over there. And uh, let's see, uh, we also have um, uh, Ruben Bennett of RV Technologies based in uh, East Montpelier uh, specializing in... Uh, and doing uh, basically uh, external or outsourced IT work for a wide range of Vermont companies, and uh, I wanted to ask. Uh, if, uh, oh, and also uh, Miles joined us. Miles, do you mind if I ask your last name? Silk. Uh, say it again.
9: Silk. S i l k.
2: Oh, Filk. Okay, got it. Uh, and and uh, I'm wondering about this uh, internal policy that you have there at the Computer Barn. Uh, I mean, it just kind of never really occurred to me before uh, until I saw this story last week and it 's c- kind of ironic that I actually had my la- my laptop in the shop there last week i don 't have any big secrets on my la- on my uh, laptop this is sort of my certainly my work laptop there 's not even any you know personal emails or anything on it its it 's all just sort of uh uh stuff I do for the radio show here mainly um and i 'm wondering uh uh, but you know, if I wanted if I wanted some aspect of my work here uh, at WDEV to be uh, to be kept secret, uh, how well can I rely on that? And do you have an official policy for your staff there that says, uh, you know, whatever Dave Graham is working on is uh, is secret?
9: Right. So for us, I mean, it's we have like a code of conduct or ethics that you know all of our tests we we teach and tell, and we expect that you keep your footprint to a minimum again that we're only looking at things that are solved problems we're not opening up you know documentation or word documents we're not going in looking for anything we're only there to solve your issue and keep everything as as small as possible
2: yeah um... Reuben Bennett uh, we were talking a a little bit about uh, the the idea that maybe uh, there ought to be some kind of external controls here i mean so many other professions i think of uh you know i i worked in journalism for a long time and in, in as a reporter for the associated press and there's there's no uh sort of state licensure or anything like like that for journalists but there is uh there are uh outfits like the uh society of professional journalists uh which which have an ethics code and uh and and have us uh try to uh, make make sure that we are treating people fairly and getting both sides of the story and all you know all these other rules that have to do with uh everything um we we have um, and the uh, uh and, and i just wonder is there anything like that i mean is there a sort of i don't know american society of computer technicians out there uh which issues sort of similar guidance
8: so there are a whole bunch of different industry associations and you know any ethical computer repair company or servicing company has an, a very strict internal code of conduct Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, at the end of the day, we are the holders of the keys to a lot of kingdoms. Um, you know, we we have the passwords and the access to anything on these networks. And that is a responsibility that whether you're holding somebody's individual laptop um, or an entire network's, uh, you know, intellectual property and business property, um it, it's It's a a really serious responsibility that is entrusted to us, and you know those of us who are in this industry that um, that succeed, we do that in large measure because we have very carefully cultivated and earned that trust um, so you know a, a breach like this where somebody pawed through somebody's private property, which in my mind, your data is your private property is that's, that's a really serious breach. Um, and you're hearing from, from miles and Fred that, you know, they operate in, in much uh, similar way. Like we, we not only don't go looking, we actively avoid looking. Yeah. we don't want to know what's on the machines. Um, you know, it's just, that's, that's part of the ethics of, of what we do. Um, that said, while there are a whole bunch of different trade groups and we're a member of a a number of them, um, and some of them have ethical codes of conduct and, you know, sort of frameworks for, um, how we should conduct ourselves. Um, there's, there's nothing really industry wide. Mm -hmm. that We've all sort of adopted and said, you know, this is a series of norms that we're going to collectively, um, agree that we'll hold ourselves to, um, and there's no external validation for any of it. There are you know, validations and norms for security and for um, data transport and transfer and um, a whole bunch of other things. But but in terms of the sort of base ethics of what we do, there's really not uh, – there, there's no sort of external audits or um, quantification of what and how we
2: operate. Right. Um, let's uh, let's bring in a listener who's on the line. Sam from Williston's calling in. Good morning, Sam.
1: Yes. Good morning. Um, my understanding uh, that uh, the uh, property was abandoned, and there was a certain period of time that he had to go back in to pick it up, and did not. And then the uh, the uh, proprietor took over. Are, are you under? And then opens it up. Are you any under any obligation if you discover, let's say, child pornography or something like that on a, on a laptop? that
8: you need to be calling up authorities? I I can take a swing at that, and I'm going to, if you don't mind, because um, in one of my past roles, I was the chair of a local school board for 10 years. Hmm. Um, So an interesting wrinkle to that is that when you're the chair of a school board or you're a school board member um, or an elected official in the school children age, you are a mandated reporter. So that means that if in my work I stumbled across something that uh, looked like child pornography or something along that line, I would be legally obligated to report that. So, um, so the short version of that answer is yes. Um, you know, there, there are certain standards that you know, when you see harm being done, um, then you've got an obligation, especially if it's child pornography and, and that. Uh, that's
1: because to uh, report. the uh, agent that picked this up uh, was the head of that task force. Uh, I don't know if it was coincidence or because he was the only agent in Delaware. I'm not sure if that's the case, but he is the head of that. So uh, there could have been, who knows.
2: Was was there uh, any report from the uh, computer tech that there, there was uh, child porn on this, on this laptop? No, he did not Sam? say that.
1: He yeah. did not say that. Okay. Was, right. He didn't, he actually wouldn't go into it. But, uh, it was just that the agent that did pick up the uh, computer and uh he was the head of that task force
2: Fred I want to ask you or 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 Miles uh um, uh to Sam's first question which was after a time when the uh, when the machine is determined to have been abandoned and and I think um, I think Miles you were saying that this is not uncommon that people sometimes do come down come down and drop stuff off and then just sort of never pick it up and they can't be found etc now you have an abandoned machine uh, and and you are putting it in a special category of maybe it's going to be recycled or whatever. Does that does that abandonment uh, change uh, the uh, the privacy rules surrounding it at all?
7: No, there's no reason for us to be snooping around anybody's stuff. And honestly, I think this Hunter Biden thing is politically motivated because obviously they didn't find something that was illegal; they found something that was uh, politically uh, expeditious. So I don't see any reason why we would even care what is on somebody's abandoned machine what we're more concerned with is just disposal of the thing yep. so as miles said we hold on to it for a good long time so that we don't you know somebody doesn't come back in you know 4 or 5 months and say oh i was on vacation but after a while you know you just have to cut and cut your losses and you just we just destroy the hard drives
2: got it okay we have
7: a gauss picker and we also have a drill
1: press and oftentimes i'll just put take a drill press to the hard drive
2: Sam, does that answer your question?
1: Uh, sure. I'm just saying. I'm just thinking. Uh, if there was a, a shoe on the other foot, of them, the guy would be a hero? What do you mean? If this was Trump's hard drive, one of Trump's kids' hard drives.
2: I don't know, would, uh, Fred. What do you think? Would the guy be a hero if it was a different political party or something?
1: I got a feeling. Uh, my my problem was is why has the FBI FBI held this for a year? Why why? Why didn't this come out during the uh, the impeachment hearings? They had it then. Course, and it was the exculpatory the evidence that they could have used saying, hey, we may have an issue here. But they didn't. So how long is this going on, I'm not sure.
2: Okay. Uh, let me let, me let uh, who was that who was trying to get in there, Fred?
8: Uh, uh, that was me, Ruben.
2: Okay, um, Ruben, I'm sorry, go ahead. Ruben. So
8: the bottom line is that this technician went through the hard drive looking at the data, which is deeply and inexcusably unethical. You don't do that. You don't go looking through somebody's private property. And this actually speaks to a bigger issue, which is that the closest thing that we have privacy expectation here is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which says you do not go looking in an unauthorized way for data, including, it sort of includes um, computer repair, but it's really broad, and it's really nonspecific. Hmm. So, we don't have a concept in the United States of our data belonging to us, and it's a really stark difference compared to, for, for example, the EU, where they have the General Data Protection Regulation. So, the contrast is, the CFAA was introduced and adopted in 1986. It's 34 years old, Yep. GDPR put in this concept that data about you belongs to you. So all of these annoying cookie banners that everybody is seeing on every website all of a sudden is because of the GDPR saying your private information is yours. And at a minimum, you can tell the website or the company that you visited that you want to be forgotten. This right to be forgotten is this really core tenet of GDPR, we don't have anything along that lines here. There's no legislation that says that we have any reasonable right to privacy, or that our data, for to sort of go back to this hard drive, that our data once abandoned still belongs to us because that data is us. It's an extension of us.
2: Well, let me get to the to the shoulds here because um, and and we got we are going to need to go to a break in just a couple minutes here, but I'll start on this anyway. Uh, Ruben, do you, th- do you think there should be legislation in the United States along the lines of, of this GEPR from the European Union uh, that, that talks about uh, the privacy of data?
8: I'm going to go a little farther and say that we need to look at the humanity first. So what, what is us? Right. So all of this data about me that I might store on my hard drive is that is that an extension of me? Is that mine? I certainly feel that way, and I think anybody who has a computer would feel that way. Mm-hmm. This technician obviously didn't feel that way, um, and and that is a fundamental problem. Uh, there's there's friction there, right? Um, okay, but so my question when is, when I abandon the hard drive, does does that piece of me, that information, does that become not mine anymore?
2: Uh, but but I mean, my question I guess is should there be you know should the Vermont legislature get after this when they return to Montpelier in January and try to draft a bill to say that in the state of Vermont uh, the the following standards apply to the expectation of privacy when you drop your uh, your your computer gear off to get fixed?
8: I think that would be too narrow i I think we really need to be looking more at our expectations of privacy and what data belongs to us. Yes, I, I think that's a, a very small starting point. I think that it's reasonable to expect that we have um, the right to the information about us um, be private. Um, but I, I think this is actually quite a lot, quite a much bigger issue um, than, you know, me dropping my laptop off at a repair shop and having a legal expectation that they don't go pawing through it.
2: Yeah, um, I mean i I, th- I think this is actually really fascinating and may may actually be a time for folks like you guys to get organized and and maybe you know suggest some some standards or or whatever Fred, do you think that there's i mean I think of other professions in in Vermont uh you know teachers have a lot of confidentiality a teacher uh, who has an issue with one student can't talk to the parents of another student. All about the first student. That's just, uh, that would be a violation of teacher confidentiality and, 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 and it would be a, a you know, probably cause for serious discipline against that teacher. Uh, maybe up and, up to and including dismissal from his or her job. Uh, lawyers have, have expectations of confidentiality when you bring your, your case to a lawyer uh the lawyer's not going to go down to the local pub and blab it all over town and if the lawyer does that you have a complaint with the professional conduct board here in the state of Vermont uh and and a legitimate one and one where that re- that lawyer ought to be sanctioned up to and including maybe disbarment if it's a repeated matter or whatever uh, and and i mean in 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 any number of other fields uh, certainly with uh, you know mental health workers you know, psychologists and social workers and those folks they have very strict confident confidentiality rules and I, I, if I just keep thinking about it, I'm sure I can come up with a dozen other professions uh, where there's state licensure and where you can lose your license if you are not a good keeper of secrets, basically. Um, should there be a similar situation in the computer tech world? I'll start with you, Fred.
7: Okay. So I'm, I'm uh, kind of on the fence on that one because, uh, over regulation sometimes can be really, uh, uh, limiting on small businesses like ours. Uh we don't make uh two hundred, three hundred dollars an hour uh like a lawyer. Now, <laughs> Good point there.
4: Uh,
7: as far as I'm I'm with Ruben all the way, I'm totally uh, I'm uh 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 amen to what he said. Um, but you know if the state's gonna start messing around with all kinds of little do's and don'ts, I don't know.
2: Uh huh. Ruben Bennett, let me get your thoughts about that. Should there be any kind of formal regulation like that? I wouldn't be
8: opposed to it. I, I think the challenge in Vermont for things like this is the challenge that we run into all of, all over the place, which is our scale. We're so small.
4: Mm-hmm.
8: Um, you know, we, we have very limited IT uh, expertise as a state. Um, we have very limited pool of, of folks to pull from as a state. I mean, anybody in the IT industry will tell you that, um, you know the the number of folks in this industry is just it's really small. The number of folks in the entire uh, state is very small.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
8: so you know we we've, we've run into this over and over again, right? State projects fail. State you know we tried to make our own exchange. It turned into a disaster. It took a long, long time. Um, we. Uh, uh, so the while philosophically i'm not opposed at all and in fact would be supportive of um, of some sort of framework that we all agree to adhere to um, i think where where operationally that comes to play would be would be really tricky mm-hmm. um, because of the resourcing like uh, how much tax money are we going to put to to doing this um, and is there are there you know we're a small state we're collaborative by nature um we you know fred and i know each other we work in the same area um you know this this industry is pretty small yeah Um, and so i i think that maybe something to consider would would be actually just some sort of loose collaboration so there's the vermont technology alliance a great organization that um has you know people from software uh co-developers, to website authors, to companies like mine and Fred's, mm-hmm. um, and and we're all members. So, you know, maybe it would a good starting point would be to, you know, the VTTA to get together and start sketching out some sort of ethics framework that we all agree to adhere to. Um, you know, I, I think that would be a good step in the right direction, and it may uncover also Um, what degree of problem we have because I think one of the things that's really key here is that and, and it's one of the things that really stood out to me in this situation what this guy did in Delaware is incredibly unusual like he's all sketched out because he doesn't want to talk about it because he knows that what he did is fundamentally wrong and frankly he should be out of business he uh, completely breached his customers' privacy and expectation of of his data being safe in the hands of this person, and that's that's an, an ethical fail, the scale of which probably should just put you out of business. I wouldn't bring my computer to somebody who did that once.
2: I wouldn't do it either. I, gotta, I have to agree with you there, but, but I want to turn it over and ask you this, Ruben. Um, it go basically uh, it, we talked about teachers and, and uh, other people in in, um, in sensitive positions that mu- who must maintain confidentiality uh yeah. and and they uh, at the same time many of them in t- including teachers and healthcare professionals and so on are mandatory reporters as we talked about if they see instances of say child abuse or or, or child sexual abuse anything like that they are required to uh, to report these instances uh, so um should that kind of standard apply in your industry as well?
4: Uh,
8: I would say it i mean it does <laughs> I mean it was only right? because but you it, only because I
2: you were a school board member, but I mean if you were if you weren't a school board member, then it doesn't right or or how does that work?
8: uh well, that's the slippery slope, isn't it? yeah um at the end of the day uh, you know if I saw mandated reporter or not, if I saw clear and present evidence uh, by mistake of uh, some horrible act being committed, I would have an a moral obligation to do something about it.
2: Yeah. I, hey, you know, you know what? I hate to I ha- I hate to cut it off because we're just I mean this is really getting fascinating. But we're about out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Fred Wilt, uh, Miles Silk, and uh, Reuben Bennett. Thank the three of you very much for joining us today. Excellent conversation. Maybe we can revisit it at some point. Hey, uh, that's about it for today's uh, edition of the Dave Graham Show here on WDEV FM and AM. Stay tuned for Governor S- Phil Scott's. Uh, bi-weekly press conference on the coronavirus crisis and tuning in again to our show tomorrow. Have a good afternoon, everyone.